0: Good morning, Grace Church. What a privilege it is to open up God's Word with you today. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, Romans 9, and what a privilege we have to open up the sacred Word of God, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God today, and to grow by it as the Spirit teaches us and enables. We're in Romans 9, and I want to say a few things before I read the Word When I say that Romans 9 is my favorite chapter, I am not saying that frivolously as if I was speaking of my favorite ice cream. I am saying that with a heart that has been captured by mercy. I am saying that from a grateful heart. I am saying that from knowing that I would be running from God if he hadn't saved me and I want you to know that because it's very easy to look at Romans 9 and say, oh, it's all about this theology, and really it's about life in Christ. And the reason why I am so, you know, connected with it is because Romans 9 encourages me as a believer, and Romans 9 strengthens me and and comforts me, really, and, and it inspires me to worship God, it inspires me to serve God, it inspires me to preach the gospel to my own heart and to any I meet and I want you to know this because we're focusing on some really tough things in scripture we're focusing once again today on verses 14 to 18 in Romans 9 which really shows us the righteous freedom of God to extend grace but also to exercise justice and so we love the grace we don't love the justice In fact, today, we're looking at verses 17 and 18, and we're not even going to get through all of that. We're going to see a lot of questions next week. We're going to see a lot of questions we need to ask ourselves as we think through these verses. But today, we're going to see perhaps the toughest truth that you find in Scripture. It's the toughest truth to accept in Scripture, that God dispenses justice as He pleases, that God dispenses justice as he desires. And so I want you to stand with me in honor of God and his word. We're going to read Romans 9. In fact, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 so you can get more of the context of where we have been. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." he wills and lord i pray with thanksgiving today that you are a god of mercy and a god of justice that if our hearts had not been changed by you we'd flee your mercy still and i thank you lord that by your spirit through your word you encourage your people you comfort your people knowing that you are in sovereign control over the wills of men, that that would spur us on to worship you and serve you and disciple and evangelize all for your glory. And while tough things come our way, Lord, there will be things that happen to us this week that we will be tempted to say that you are not fair. And Lord, may may these truths we see today anchor our souls in your truth. in your your great mercy and compassion and justice. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So perhaps the toughest truth to accept in Scripture is that God dispenses justice as he desires. And these verses go against our sense of fairness, don't they? We start to think, wait, this doesn't seem fair. We have this sense of justice. And yet we must admit that we are living in a time when justice has been largely confused and and confounded, even co-opted on the world stage, that justice by definition and application has undergone quite a metamorphosis. And we hear terms that we find hard to figure out and to grasp like social justice or reproductive justice and other kinds of justice that are named the idea of giving equal or a favored status to certain groups um, the distribution of wealth and opportunities and social privileges and righting the wrongs of the past well what we find is our attempts at equality lead to inequality That our attempts even to correct injustices are often unjust and you see this if you want an example just think of the painfully swift and unfeeling social media justice that happens every single day instant judge and jury and it greets my heart to say but we even see christians gleefully rejoicing in the fall of fellow believers due to their sin piling on while at the same time we can be hypocritical ourselves right that we, here's a picture, we tackle our teammates in Christ. We condemn certain people's sins while celebrating some of our own. We're like the legalistic Pharisees that we need to drop our rocks. If we're gonna follow Jesus, he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But often as we think of justice in our time, we find it wrapped around the axle of pride and prejudice. And so we have to work extra hard To understand what justice is. True justice. Biblical justice. God's justice. Justice is a commodity that that God trades in. He is perfectly just. You read the Bible and it tells you that you are to do no injustice. Job 6.21. Let no injustice be done. Micah 6.8. Do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Do justice. Justice is is just behavior. It is fair. It is reasonable treatment of others. It is impartial application of law. It is conformity to truth. Justice is where you get what you deserve. Justice is where you get what you deserve. It's unlike mercy where you get what you don't deserve. Every believer receives mercy from God. We get what we don't deserve. We get forgiveness and, and love and acceptance and eternal life. In heaven, and and, and we don't get what we do deserve. God's justice is perfectly right. Absolutely right. He knows our thoughts and our intentions of our hearts before we think them. He is wiser than any referee on a football field. He is wiser than any Supreme Court justice. And we need to remember, there's no minefield between God's justice and his mercy. It's not like, well, I got to be careful because it's really dangerous in there. No, they are in perfect harmony. There's no minefield between God's justice and mercy. There are just things we don't understand or comprehend about the sovereignty of God. God is not confused. And so when you look at Romans 9.17, this kind of makes you go wow when you think about it. Here's what you see in Romans 9.17. Gospel glory through a vessel of wrath and an enemy of God gospel glory through a vessel of wrath an enemy of God you just go wow how can that be now let's talk about fairness and justice for a moment if fairness is everyone receiving exactly what they deserve we would all be spending eternity in hell paying for our sins we've all sinned against God Romans three twenty three. all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God We are worthy of eternal death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if we got what we deserve, we would all end up in the lake of fire. But God is merciful. God is good. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place. Uh, Believers never tire of hearing the gospel truth that, that Jesus... Took our punishment, that he took our sin upon himself, that he took the punishment we deserve, and in Christ, sin is punished. And that all who believe in him will be saved, that Jesus died for our sins, and was buried, and rose on the third day. And he ascended to the Father, and he is preparing a place for us, and he is coming back with blessing for his own. But we look around, and we know not everyone is saved. And we ask, Why? Why doesn't everyone believe? Why are there people all around us rejecting Christ? Why are there friends and neighbors and family members, even total strangers that we care about and and we want them to know Christ? And there are billions, billions without Christ. And we ask why? And Romans 9 answers the question from the ultimate vantage point. God's vantage point. Now, if you've ever gone on a really high mountain, you could say, you know, I saw things on that high mountain that no human eye could see at sea level, right? I've been in the uh, the Himalayas before. I've been in Kathmandu, Nepal. I was able to see things that I couldn't see from sea level here in California, right? Even this last summer, we were at Buck Rock in the Sequoias, and I climbed up this Rickety staircase in the wind and 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 I got up to the top. I'm, I'm, I remember thinking I did it I didn't chicken out. I did it. I had my two younger daughters with me I'm serious and I got up to the top of Buck Rock and there's this fire lookout station a- and a, a Ranger stays all night there for several days looking along the horizon to see if there's any smoke if there's any fires And we saw things, you know, it was a a long staircase, uh, stairway, and it it was really steep. And we were able to see things in a panorama view that you couldn't see 250 feet below. But it would be foolish to say, I saw the entire world at one time. You're up in an airplane and you see all these things, but it would be foolish to say, I can see it all. Back in my children's pastor days, I used to write, uh, draw a a picture for kids. In fact, I've used it with a lot of adults as well, where you say, look, you want to talk about what you know and what God knows? So let's just say, so here's the day of your birth, and here's today, and here's the day of your death, and now you can draw a a, a bit of a rectangle there, and and what you know is from when you're born, you know, when you start getting aware, the other day I was kind of blown away because I was thinking of my, my youngest uh, Sophia who was born in 2003 and I'm thinking all she knows is 2003 up till today it's, it's wild a wild thought right but here it is and you draw that rectangle and that's all you know from when you were born until today but then you go well what does God see what does God know it, it's, it's over everything and at every angle he sees everything and, and we think that we can give God advice you know, there aren't many of us who are in danger of having too high a view of God. And so Romans 9 answers the question from the ultimate vantage point God's. He sees everything, everything. Romans 8 culminated in this awesome, you know, eruption of praise. To God for his saving lost sinners and securing us in Christ. that, That nothing can separate the uncondemned from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 9 starts with Paul being in unceasing anguish and grief in his heart because of those who are separated God because they're rejecting Christ and he's dealing with this this is a personal thing for him he has unceasing grief over unbelief the unbelief of his own Christ rejecting people they had privileges that pointed but couldn't save they had these magnificent gospel privileges that pointed to Christ and they missed Christ and we think it's shocking but think back If you can remember back when you were missing Christ and you were hardened in your heart and you were blinded, spiritually speaking. And yet, what do we see? God shows mercy to some. God shows mercy to some. And it's for his name. It's it's for his glory. It's for his fame. It's his name. Everything he is. His priority is to glorify himself. And and while it is tough for us to grasp, because we love the mercy, we hate the wrath. While it is tough for us to grasp, God is glorified as he allows some people to experience his just wrath. His justice. God is glorified in that. This is what Romans 9, 17 and 18 are telling us. By the way, Romans chapters 9 through 11 is what is known as a theodicy. Okay, not an odyssey, a theodicy. It, it, it's a justification of the ways of God. God, the Holy Spirit, spoke these words so that we would know that God is working out his mighty, loving, gracious, merciful, kind, just purposes. And, and Paul is the human instrument here, and he's vindicating the ways of God, three ways in three chapters. And they pretty much, they intersect a lot, but chapter nine is about God's absolute sovereignty. Chapter 10 is about man's moral responsibility. Chapter 11 is about God's ultimate purpose. And, and you see some of man's moral responsibility in chapter nine, but it really really focuses on God's absolute sovereignty. You see God's absolute sovereignty in chapter 10, but it really focuses on man's moral responsibility before God. And chapter 11 talks about sovereignty and man's responsibility, but it's really about God's ultimate purpose. And this is what we're seeing in these chapters. They're not easy chapters to read. They're not easy chapters to believe. They're not easy chapters to accept. But we must, for those of us who follow Christ. I want you to see in this passage... Four facets of God's righteous freedom as it pertains to His justice. So four facets of God's righteous freedom as it relates to His justice. The point of the text that we're looking at today in the context of salvation, is that God has righteous freedom, both to give justice to whomever wills and to give mercy. Now again, we love the mercy. We don't like the justice. In fact, some of us say, I just can't stomach the justice. But it is God's absolute right as God. To dispense justice according to his own decision and not due to any human activity. God is not, you know, having us vote. God is not consulting with us. And this should be comforting as well as challenging and stretching. You look back at verses 14 through 16 and what you see that we learn from God's dealing with Moses. And it was really in that golden calf scenario when the people were egregiously sinning against God and being idolatrous, what we learn is that God has righteous freedom to give mercy and compassion to whomever he wills. That God always works for his glory in accordance with his truth, and there is no injustice in God. There is no unrighteousness in God. He is good in freely saving some. And we learn that salvation depends on God's will and works, not Ours, God's will and works. Verse 16. And now in verses 17 and 18, we have another Old Testament example, but it's the example of Pharaoh. It's the hard heart of Pharaoh that now is getting you know, laser beamed in on. It's the Israelites' fiercest enemy. Look at verse 17 with me. First thing he says. First thing he says, I love it. The scripture says to Pharaoh. The scripture says to Pharaoh. You see that? Literally says scripture. Says who? Says scripture. Those are great first words. Uh, it's in the present tense. Here's what it means. Scripture spoke and continues to speak. It's never been mute. You might have pushed away the word of God at some point in your life. You might be tempted to do that at times in your life now, but scripture spoke and continues to speak god speaks to us through his word he is not mute he is a speaking god and and here's what paul is referring to exodus as scripture he's quoting exodus and he says the scripture says to pharaoh that tells us something we must never forget about the scriptures even though you might say well this is an obvious point not to everyone here's something that you should never forget about scripture it is the word of god It is the word of God. When you see in the Bible terms such as God said, the Spirit says, the Scriptures say, the Holy Spirit says, those are terms used interchangeably that God is speaking to his people in and through his word. Now, if you are someone who says, you know, I don't believe the Bible. And by the way, we have plenty of people who come to grace who aren't believers We're glad that that they're here with us. But there's there's people who will say, I don't believe or trust the Bible. I'm glad they keep hearing the Bible, okay? But if you don't believe or trust the Bible, you're not going to believe God is fair. You're going to say, I don't think God is fair. You're going to be more tempted to say and more apt to say, God isn't fair. Billy Graham once told the story of a man named Robert Ingersoll, who was this agnostic who would give these dramatic you know lectures about how he doubts god's existence and one night he's speaking to a group in a small town in new york and he says i doubt that there is a future judgment and hell and a man stands up in the back and says i sure hope you're right brother bob i'm counting on that that guy's putting too much stock in brother bob's words he says, you know the guy says "Uh, there's no future judgment there's no hell there's no god And here's the thing, this is human nature. We do not like to think of God in terms of wrath and anger and judgment. We want to think about all the things that make us feel good. I'm just like you. If I'm reading the Bible, I want to read the parts that make me actually feel good inside and go, wow, how encouraging, how amazing. This is great. We don't want to read about wrath. Romans 9.17, the scripture says. Let's set the context here a bit. The scripture says, verse 17, the scripture says, this is very interesting, verse 17 is going back to verses 13 and 14, okay, so it skips verses 15 and 16, and I'll tell you why. Verse 13, it says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So the objection comes in, what shall we say then, is God unjust, is he unrighteous for loving Jacob and hating Esau? So the answer is, God forbid that either of those would be true. So verses 15 and 16 answers the question about loving Jacob. It's is God unrighteous in loving Jacob and showing him mercy? And Paul now in verse 17 is answering the other objection. Is he unrighteous in not choosing, not choosing Esau? How it was put, hating Esau. He wasn't chosen. And Paul is quoting Exodus 9:16. Where God spoke to Moses and said, here's what you're going to say to Pharaoh. You're going to say to Pharaoh, for this reason, I, God, have raised you up to show you my power. That my name may be declared throughout all the earth. I want us to dig into the roots of this passage. I want you to see something very clear here in the passage. I want you to see four facets of God's righteous freedom as as it pertains to his justice. The first thing I want you to notice, right from the text, is God's purpose. God's purpose, verse 17. God's purpose planned before the world began to glorify himself. Verse 17 begins for. So he's giving more evidence to prove God's freedom according to his own decision, and not on the basis of any human activity, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. It's the purpose of God. So he's given a quote from the Old Testament to prove that God does sovereignly choose who will serve his purposes and how so verse 17 for this very purpose what god is saying is it's my same purpose it's for the same purpose i have now god's purposes are his own his plans are his own let's say that you want to build a new house and you say yeah i like this house over here let's get the plans for that house and build that house and you go get you buy the plans and it's just like this other house or let's say you live in a tract and there's three houses in your neighborhood and they all you know just repeat them right every one two three one two three one two three and they just keep repeating the same floor plan maybe they might get creative and like flip the floor plan right but even so uh you use someone else's plans this is how it is in life we go oh i had this new idea well you know what someone else has had that idea before okay you've innovated off the idea but you didn't come up with it from scratch here's god who comes up with everything from scratch. Again, he's not telling us, um, I'm gonna do this, are you guys okay with it? Let's have a vote and we'll count them up and we'll see who wins. No, for this very purpose, he's saying, my purposes are my own. God's purposes are his own. And he says, for this very purpose, I raised you up. Loaded, pithy term here, okay? It, It means I caused you to be alive. I gave you life. I gave you breath. I allowed you to appear. This is what God is saying when he says, I, I raised you up. I brought you forward on the stage of events. I created you. I gave you life. This idea of raising up, it, re- it refers to bringing someone forward. This is the idea of God calling actors onto the world stage, the stage of human history. And so God raises leaders and countries to positions of prominence this is why we should not be so quick to bash our least favorite public figures god has raised them up sometimes he raises up really evil people like pharaoh pharaoh thought he was acting on his own free choice to do what he wanted and and what we find out here what pharaoh found out he, he existed to serve god's purposes he existed to serve God's purposes. I'm glad that we do not have an unknowing God that just gets surprised and just reacts to what happens. That, you know, somehow he doesn't know what's going to go down. We should be glad that God does not act in response to any external stimuli, that, that he is absolutely sovereign in his choices. This is, what, this is what Romans nine seventeen is telling us. And God is not capricious. He's not nefarious. He's not villainous. He is in no way unrighteous. What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh's the evil one. Pharaoh makes the people of God his slaves and refuses to set them free. And why did he do it? Again, this is one of those hard things for us to accept. He did that because God decided he would. God consults no one. God needs no advice. He does everything from scratch. I love Job. If you, if you want to you know, read about God's righteous freedom, just read Job chapters 38 and 39. A- and I love, I love the first four words of, of, of Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when... I love that. God's telling Job, you know, time out. (laughs) Where were you when I did this and this and this and this? Were were you giving me advice? Were were you somehow ahead of me at that point? Where were you when? He's taking every escape route out. He's taking every self-deterministic human thought off the table and he's saying, you know what? You might think that pharaoh you might think that your position or or your actions were of your own free choice to accomplish your own purposes but in reality you were there to serve my purposes for, for my name the sum of the character of god it was god's purpose god's plan god's destination god's goal god's ultimate aim Let's move on to a second thing we see here that relates to God's justice. Right from the text, God's power. Verse 17, that I might show my power in you. That I might show my power in you. Here's God's power put on display to display his greatest glory. He's going to show his power. He's going to demonstrate his ability. He's going to display his power. He's going to do a mighty deed. What we're finding out here is that Pharaoh existed as ruler of Egypt precisely for the purpose of displaying God's willingness and ability to save his people. Paul describes God's might as his power, earlier in Romans, as a connection between God's righteousness and his power, as well as his righteousness as both his saving power and his impartiality and judgment. This is the message of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. How God puts his power on display as he shows mercy and as he is just. Power on display. I just read the other day about a high schooler who squatted like 900 pounds. And it was like, wow, they broke the Texas record. It was a couple of years ago. And then someone beat him, and I guess then they've squatted 1,025 pounds. This This is a huge display of power. And, and here's the deal, they do that like one moment, like, like it's taken five seconds to do it, right? Wow, what a display of power. So here's God on the human stage, on the stage of history, at every point in time, displaying his awesome power. There, there's never a moment that his power is not on display. His, his power is on display continually in real time. A- and take for proof just the story of the Red Sea. Think, think about it. Every time someone reads the story of the Red Sea, they don't say, wow, I'm going to name my kid Pharaoh. Wow, well, Pharaoh, now there's a guy you want to emulate. No, everyone reads that and says, wow, Pharaoh was evil, but God is so good. Wow, God saved his people from the horses and the chariots of Egypt and the Red Sea, you know, came in on him. And you got the song that you sing and all that stuff. God is powerful on display and and the word of god stands so every time you're reading the red sea about the red sea or every time you read of the cross the power of god in resurrection his power is on display never a moment when it is not on display so you see god's purpose you see god's power and then straight from the text we're still in verse 17 god's proclamation His proclamation of his glorious name. Who he is in all his magnificent glory. He says that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. My name. The entirety of the character of God. His person, his reputation, his goodness, his character, his holiness, his glory. Might be proclaimed. Might be declared. Might be told. Throughout the whole earth. The reason why is because God is absolutely committed to proclaim his name and to advertise his glory by showing his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness and his justice as he freely chooses. In the whole earth, it's not a limited geographical location it's not like just for a limited time only this is for all time and in all places in the whole earth the totality of every person in creation you think about how many people live on earth as of 2018 it was seven billion six hundred and fifty five million nine hundred and fifty seven thousand three hundred and sixty nine i do not know how they published that figure and got it so exact At that one moment. The the, the numbers are changing constantly. People are being born. People are dying. But God, in the proclamation of his name, advertises his glory, not just in 2019, but in every moment of human history. There is never a moment when he is not advertising his glory. What is he selling you? The fact that he is good and just and right. And pure, and almighty, and all-knowing, and all-powerful. He advertises his glory. He he publishes his glory. He's committed to proclaim his name. You watch the Super Bowl last couple weeks ago. You watch the Super Bowl, right? A uh, lot of commercials on the Super Bowl. Some people say I don't watch the Super Bowl, but I watch the commercials. You know, I I've slept through. I always sleep through part of the Super Bowl and part of the commercials, and I hear about them later. But you can see them online, right? Guess how much it costs you? Guess how much it costs you for three, excuse me, 30 seconds of a Super Bowl commercial? How much does it cost? You You know. Five million dollars. Five million dollars, and you get your chance to speak to 98 million people at one time. So here's your shot. You got 30 seconds to make your pitch. Tell us why we should buy your product and why it's so amazing. 98 million people. For 30 seconds, it'll cost you $5 million. You want to go to a, a minute, it'll be 10. $10, 10 million. But you could advertise the glory of your product in front of 98 million people. What are you going to say? And here is God. Here is God. Putting himself on display at every moment, at every time in human history. Not for 30 seconds, not for a minute, but for those who will recognize and listen. It's going on forever. Published abroad, thoroughly. One writer said this, even to the present day, wherever throughout the world Exodus is read, the divine intervention is realized. Again, it's not, wow, look at Pharaoh, it's, what a loser, and wow, how great God is. In fact, you want to read some awesome stuff? Just read Exodus 4 through 14, those, those chapters. You know what you have there? A powerful international declaration of the mighty hand of God. He has willed that his glory would be advertised to the entire world in all time, in every place. If you're a believer today, think about the the gospel. You're to, to, um, to not only know the gospel and rejoice in it, but to share it, right? So here's God who has willed that his glorious gospel truth would be published to the whole world that the ends of the earth would hear, that every Christian is sent to go and to speak and even to sacrifice for that gospel message. And what happens when you you preach the gospel? What happens when you preach the gospel in your own heart? Your soul is thrilled if you're a believer. What happens when you preach the gospel to, to those who don't believe? They're either going to have their heart opened by God to believe the gospel or their heart will be hardened and they will reject it. But either way, God's magnificent glory, his name, will be proclaimed. Now let's move on to verse 18. Let's move on to verse 18. And you see God's prerogative, God's prerogative, dispensing mercy or justice as he wills. It's his choice, his exclusive right by virtue of rank. He is God all glorious. He's not asking us for our opinion. Verse 18, so then, therefore, the basic conclusion of both issues here, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It is the hardening that is the stumbling block for so many. Maybe one of the the most tough sentences you'll ever need to believe. God saves and doesn't save whomever he wills the glory of his name this is what romans 9 17 and 18 are telling us the mighty act and think about this the mighty act of god in freeing israel from pharaoh you know what it demonstrated two connected truths number one both moses and pharaoh were wicked sinners they were both murderers and they were equally guilty they were equally worthy of god's wrath and eternal punishment both of them and number two Moses received mercy, Pharaoh received God's judgment. Why? Only because of God's sovereign will. His purpose, his intent, the plan of the ages. And by the way, you look at this last verse, verse 18. So then he has mercy on him he wills, and hardens him whenever he wills. When you see what wills means, it strengthens the argument. He wills. Let's talk about mercy. You know what that means? That God desires, that God enjoys, that it brings God great joy to have mercy. And then you read that he hardens whomever he wills. You know what that means? If He wills. He desires. And he enjoys. And it brings God great joy and glory to harden and make Some stubborn and obstinate. Hard truth for us to accept. What do we see in Exodus? We see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What does it lead to? Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Uh, Difficult verses. You know, in, in verses 17 and 18 here in Romans 9... Pharaoh is his case study of how God's sovereignty is related to human responsibility. Exodus chapters 4 to 14, fascinating. Uh, On the one hand, you've got the Bible saying God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then uh, at the next chapter, you've got Pharaoh hardens his heart. But Exodus 4.21, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, and I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. When did God say that? He said it before he went back to Egypt. Now, 10 times, Exodus refers to God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, and, and plenty of times, it refers to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And Romans is telling us, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to fulfill his plan and to glorify himself. But also, you read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God tells Pharaoh, by the way, you're getting punished because you worked against my people. But it is God's prerogative. He gets to choose. Today, they're going to play the NBA All-Star Game. And LeBron James and and, uh, uh, Giannis, I can't say his last name, the Greek freak. That's what they call him. He's an amazing player. Both those guys are the captains, right? They got to choose whoever was going to be on their team. They just got to choose that. Or, you know, when you were a kid, you play a pickup game of football or something and there's two captains you get to choose who's on your team or let's just say you get jury duty and they and they look at you and they put you there and they say do we want this person to be on the jury they're going to choose you whether or not they they like you know what you're saying or not and they're going to help the case and all that or let's say you're at the store and you're choosing fruit do i want this apple or that apple do i want this pear or that pear i want this tomato or that tomato tomatoes are fruit you're going to choose what looks best you're going to choose what you like best. And here's what you've got in the economy of God. A God-glorifying hardening of Pharaoh. This is after the seventh plague, God tells Pharaoh through Moses why he made him Pharaoh and why he is hardening his heart. And think with me for a moment how patient God is with stubbornness. Uh, it comes from the same root as hardening Stubbornness of heart. He, he doesn't strike Pharaoh down immediately. Why? Why does he allow prolonged resistance? Because through that, it brings him a much more dramatic public display of his power, and therefore a worldwide proclamation of the greatness of God, when he says, that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. And you learn the sobering truth, that God can even harden people In a way that brings him maximum glory. That mercy. Which we like. And hardening. Which we don't. Are his sovereign choice. In 1982 I decided to follow Jesus Christ. And then I realized. I found out. That God decided to save me. Before the foundation. Of the world. That makes that. 1982 decision looks small compared to god's decision but it was still my decision in 1982 it's just that god's decision is so far higher we decide to follow christ and god decides to save us far far before we want to do anything his decisive deciding comes first He governs the universe. One person put it this way, we will as he has willed that we will will. We will as he has willed that we will will. And we are responsible for what we will. And he has willed that we should will. And what is the Bible saying about hardening here? Was Pharaoh a good guy that God turned bad? Absolutely not. Pharaoh was an evil man. He was enslaving and seeking to slaughter by army, the Israelites, and before that, seeking to slaughter by infanticide many children. Romans one twenty four tells us that people whose hearts are full of lust and God gives over to their desires. God, hardening Pharaoh's heart, was giving him over to his sinful desires. Uh, Pharaoh was resisting God. Uh, God gave him what he chose, allowed him to go his own way. God withdrew all divine influences that ordinary acted as a restraint to sin and allowed Pharaoh's heart To pursue its wicked sin unchecked. Do you know that without the restraining hand of God, we are doomed to go deeper into sin? Martin Lloyd Jones said it this way the world fell into sin, and God put a limit, a restraint upon it. This world would be complete chaos and hell if He did not do so. But the moment He drives back His restraining influence at any point, there is a hardening there, so that one of the ways in which God produces hardening, He leaves them to Himself. What Romans 9 is telling us is that God is absolutely sovereign over the will of men. Even sinful acts. God does not condone sin. God is not the author of sin, but it is in his plan. Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The very evil you did, God meant for good. To bring about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. Psalm 76 10 surely the wrath of man will praise god think about this the only we go back to the golden calf the only reason israel was not destroyed was because of god's mercy he says i will have mercy we're glad he says i will will harden we don't like but mercy relates to eternal salvation refers to eternal salvation Hardening refers to eternal rejection. It, it refers to an individual's eternal destiny. The only other time in Romans that you see a word like this is Romans 2.5. According to your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's unresponsiveness to the call of God, bound for final judgment of the wrath of God. Ephesians 4.18 speaks of people who are alienated from the life of God on account of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their heart. So what we see today is that God raised Pharaoh up and put him in the place he was and permitted him to be the king of Egypt that through his hard heart, God would show forth his power. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God pours out plagues upon him. Pharaoh keeps saying, no. Thomas Watson said, a hard heart is a receptacle for Satan. God has two places he dwells in, heaven and a humble heart. The devil has two places he dwells in, hell and a hard heart. Watson said, the wicked man shall drink a sea of wrath but not sip one drop of injustice. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The biblical answer to that question is found in Romans 9.17 to demonstrate his power that his name might be proclaimed through all the earth. And Lord, thank you that even though f- it might not sound right to our ears and that Romans might be the most difficult chapter in the Bible for us to read and understand and accept, we, we desire, Lord, to come with care and understanding, to be precise about what you are saying while preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Your word says you're in total control and that you sovereignly elect to show mercy to some while hardening the hearts of others and that you're just in doing so and that we are in no position to challenge you on the matter and that we are fully responsible for all of our actions and accountable for all of our choices. And that we know that guilty sinners must take you seriously, Lord, and confess their sins and cry for mercy and call on Christ's name, believing who he is, believing what he's done. If any are in earshot, Lord, of of these words, may they do that. If they have not, may may they believe in Jesus and be saved. And Lord, for all of us, may we embrace your mystery and Embrace even the tension, that we would not explain away how you use Pharaoh for your glory, but that we would just be in awe of you, knowing we can't explain it so greatly, but you have the most biblically accurate explanation. And and we just ask you, Lord, to, to, to assist us to proclaim the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.